today we are joined by the lovely and talented Brandy Guild. Brandy, how are you? I'm good, CJ. It's good to talk to you. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. So Brandy, I've known for many years through the West Coast swing dancing community. She is a talented world traveling professional who I am overjoyed to be able to speak with today and learn a little about her background and how she got to where she is. Yeah, Brandy, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here. I'd love to kick things off by getting a sense of your description of what you do and perhaps how long you've done it for. Yeah, I've done this for a while now. So I have been making my living as a traveling dance professional for about 23 years now. And I'm one of the very fortunate ones that gets to do this. It was never a career plan. I'll tell you that much that the industry evolved as I grew into it. So the job changed once I was already in it. If you asked me to project somebody starting today and what their path would look like, it would look so different than mine does now because I kind of got in, I wouldn't say on the ground floor, but we'll just say maybe the second tier. So it's been evolving all along the way. I'm a dancer, I'm a coach, I'm a choreographer, I'm a teacher. And the truth of the matter is teaching pays the bills, but dancing and performing and competing is what keeps you relevant enough that people want to learn from you, therefore allowing you to pay the bills. You have a broad portfolio of skills. You're not just like one thing and that's your thing for your entire career, entire life. Right. They're all interdependent on one another. What what kind of led you down this road or inspired you to go down this road? I'm curious if you had a mentor or you, I mean, I'm sure you grew up dancing, but- Oh, I did what, You did not. So, okay, let's, no. let's dig in that. How do you end up here? Like what led you down- a, a career path towards becoming a, a professional instructor among, among your other, obviously, uh, talents. I'm going to give you just the very quick version of what happened for me post high school. Uh, I was a softball player my entire life. I started playing when I was five years old and, uh, the goal was a scholarship and uh, like I played softball. That is what I did. And so I graduated from high school and I got a full scholarship to Marshall university. Uh, of We Are Marshall fame in Huntington, West Virginia. So it was a very young program. And as a freshman, I got, I was our starting pitcher. I was the workhorse of the team, had an incredible season. I made the all-conference team. I made every all-tournament team. I was our conference freshman of the year. But again, it was a very young program. And at the end of the year, my coach opted to cut my scholarship in half to bring another freshman in on a full ride. And she just assumed because I was established, I would stay. And I opted not to go back. Uh, When I came home after my freshman year, there was some personal turmoil of me finding out that my parents were splitting up and things were just kind of crazy. And I did not want to pay to go back to West Virginia to play ball for a program that I didn't think valued me. So I was pretty aimless at that point. My sister was going to UNLV and she had a condo in Vegas and one of her roommates moved out. So I moved to, to Las Vegas. I was 19 years old and I was working retail, just making ends meet. And she handed me a fake ID and started taking me to country bars. And so (laughs) I learned how to two-step and I was pretty good at it. So all of the dancers, anybody who's ever been out to a nightclub with partner dancing, there are the dancers and then there are the others who dance. And so the dancers kind of brought me into their fold and eventually there was one guy who was like, hey, do you want to enter this contest with me? 
And I said, well, sure, but I don't want to wear cowboy boots with a skirt because it looks stupid. And I don't want to stick my arm out like you guys do, like you're in an airplane, because that also looks stupid. And he said, well, boots and a skirt are non-negotiable. We'll talk about the arm thing later. So I entered this contest. We went to Reno, entered a contest, amateur, novice level. Then I decided to move back to California. And this partner, Angelo Spada, he said, go to Phil Adams' dance studio. And so I did. I went to Phil Adams' studio and started taking some lessons. And by this time, I was working for uh, an auto reconditioning company doing sales for fixing windshields. So Phil put me on one of his dance teams and I started dancing on a team and we went to the world championships. And one of the other team members asked me if I wanted to compete in the couples division. So we were dancing division four, which was again, the novice level. And there were 40 some odd couples that year. This was 1996. And we ended up taking second. So over the course of that next year, there was a partner in Michigan in the Detroit area uh, that was looking for a pro country dance partner. And my, my coach, Phil, suggested that he audition me as a partner. So we tried out together and he thought there was some potential there. So I packed up my truck and I moved to Michigan. And I packed only what would fit in my truck, figuring if it all went sideways, I could turn around and drive home. And I would, you know, no harm, no foul. So I moved out to Michigan and had no means of earning money except for teaching. So I started teaching far sooner than I started. I should have started teaching. One thing that was good was I came from California. West Coast Swing was very new in the country scene. So I had, I was somehow considered an authority in spite of the fact that I didn't know a ton. So it was uh, mid-1996 when I moved out there. And in January of 1998, I won my first professional world championship in country dancing. And so it went quick. And then once I established that title, now traveling was starting to become an option. We ended that partnership. It was a rough road there. And then I moved back to Southern California, specifically to San Diego. And that's when I started dancing with Ronnie DiBenedetta, who was my professional West Coast swing and country partner for the better part of two decades. So that's how I started dancing. It was never a plan and it happened all by accident. And the truth of the matter is I had nothing to fall back on. So failure wasn't an option. I had to figure out how to make this work. This is great. That, that's so much to dig into. The last conversation I had, uh, my friend Bradley used the term serendipitous. Uh, so like you, you also just alluded to that you didn't plan for this. It just happened. But I think the constant theme that I'll probably touch on and come back to, and it's about putting yourself out there and trying new things and not waking up one day with like the answers there and like the path there. So had you not been outgoing enough to say yes, or just to try new things, like you, you would have never ended up going down this route that now you you're here 23 years later from. I mean, the dance saved me. It really did. It saved me. I am a huge advocate of saying the scary yes. I call it the scary yes. I've had to say the scary yes numerous times in my life when my brain was just telling me, are you crazy? Who do you think you are? And I I would have to say yes, and then I'd have to figure it out. I don't believe, you know, I use the old definition of luck where opportunity meets preparation. Opportunity, like if, if I didn't have the opportunity that Phil Adams presented me by saying, you know, he was advocating for me like, this girl is good, you should give her a shot. You can't manifest opportunity out of thin air. It has to come from somewhere. 
But the idea is, are you prepared and are you willing to work harder than you've ever really wanted to work to make it happen once that opportunity presents? Nothing just happens to you. You have to make it happen somewhat. You have to be outside. You have to be walking around. You have to be talking to people. Right. Sitting at home watching Netflix isn't going to change your life. <laughs> well, it depends what you're watching. I mean, there are, there are some pretty good shows. I won't lie. Netflix, so maybe some Netflix is doing some good work these days. I, I do like my nature docs, so I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll tune in to learn more about the planet. In general, how have you been able to sustain a career in this? I guess, like, why is being a dance instructor in demand? What would lead someone to want to dance or want to take lessons? Oh, there are so many things that bring people into a dance studio. And what's really funny, and I try to always keep in mind, is by the time somebody walks into a dance studio, they've already said the scary yes. Dancing is scary for people. Even at a high level, when you've done this for a long time, dance is the art where you are both the artist and the medium of expression. And it's very personal. It's very vulnerable. People walk into dance studios for so many reasons, whether it's to meet people, whether it's because they're getting married and their fiance is dragging them in to learn a wedding dance, because of divorce, because of illness, because of loneliness. People learn to partner dance for so many reasons. Believe it or not, I have tons of software engineers in every single class, and I'm pretty convinced it's because they work with machines all day long and they're craving human contact. And they're craving human contact in a context where they are told exactly what to do and they are told exactly how to interact with another person. So it takes some of the scariness away. So it's important to understand that once you hit the competitive, so there's social dancing and there's competitive dancing and there's some overlap, but pros exist at all different levels. So I always say we have local pros, we have regional pros, we have national pros, and we have global pros. And every single one of those professionals is really important for the health of the community. The local pros create the feeder pool. And some of those dancers go on to become interested in traveling to events, learning enough to enter contests, and they become a part of this global community. And other people just want to show up to a studio on a Wednesday night after work and take an hour-long dance class, rotate around, interact with people, and they don't want any more than that, and that's okay too. So when people are looking at this as an occupation, I think they have to be very honest with where they fit in the grand scheme of it, whether it's local, regional, national, or global. I feel like everybody kind of has their eyes on that global pro. It looks really glamorous. Let me tell you, it's not really glamorous. It is fun, it's exciting, it's demanding, and it's definitely not for everyone. How so? You sacrifice a lot in regards to family. Traveling globally, I was actually, here's a funny story, 2019 was my busiest year ever since having kids. Before I had kids, I was on the road 45 weekends a year, which left me with not much of a home social life, but that didn't bother me because my social life, my friends were on the road, they were my colleagues. And so I had kids. I have a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old. So I planned to stop traveling after having kids. I mean, having children changes your body and going back to dancing after having kids. So a quick side note, my son was born via an emergency C-section in September of 08. And I danced the world championships for country dance in January 09. And I worked very hard to get my body back in shape 
I, I felt like I needed to prove it to me and I needed to prove it to other women because so many women have kids and then kind of disappear and dancing is no longer a viable option for them. And so we now have this new generation of working moms that are on the road in spite of the fact that they have children. But there are a lot of sacrifices that go into that. So 2019 was my busiest year ever. 2020 was positioned to be even busier than 2019. And that is no longer the case, as we all know. But I had committed to taking international travel off of my calendar in 2021. And the reason is, is I share custody of the kids with their dad, and he has them for five days at a time, and we go back and forth. I can do any gig in the US or Canada in the time that my kids are with their dad. But anytime I would travel overseas, I would have to steal a day from my family or two on either side of the trip. And I wasn't enjoying that. And I wasn't getting that time back with them. So for example, I would go to Australia. I would leave on a Tuesday to go work in Australia for the weekend. And I'd be home by Monday which meant I was on the road. I was actually in transit for about the same amount of time that I was feet on the ground. And it's so hard on your body because then I come home and I'm jet lagged and I try to get back into a rhythm with the kids with cooking dinners and getting them to school and being present for them. And I'm just a zombie for two to three days after I return. So the global pros... Uh, there are definite sacrifices that you have to make. And there comes a time, depending on the choices you make in your family life, that you have to kind of pick one or the other. I have some friends who are younger and more single. And the allure of being a traveling dance pro is a lot greater because they don't have the same level of responsibilities or a, a family to worry about. So I can see those priorities changing over time. I'm curious about a typical day in the life of Brandy, both pre and I guess perhaps post COVID, because I know the coronavirus pandemic has significantly changed our ability to get together and like dance with people. So 2020 has been rough for partner dancing as a hobby, as a source of income. Let's pretend it's 2019 and life is more or less normal. What did a typical day or week look like for you? I chose to make the bulk of my money on the road. I have both a home business and an on-the-road business. My home business consists of private lessons and weekly group classes at a local studio. But the big money was when I was actually on the road. So I typically would, I had group classes on Wednesday evenings, and those were good and fun and big. Like I had 30 couples in, in my group classes. And so I would teach a handful of private lessons during the day while the kids are in school. After the kids are out of school, then that was my mom, mom time. Wednesday evenings, I would have group classes. And then typically I would leave town. If the kids are home, I stayed home. If the kids were with their dad, I would leave town either on Thursday or Friday, depending on where I was headed. I would go to a dance event or a workshop weekend. So those are the two choices that I have. If it's a workshop weekend, it's a local community that is bringing me in just for the weekend to train their dancers. And typically I would do private lessons that were booked and then I would teach a series of workshops and we would have a dance in the evening. And I would do that all the way up until Sunday night and then I would fly home either Sunday night or Monday morning depending on where I was. For dance events, same kind of thing. I would be hired to judge, teach workshops, I would book my own private lessons, and uh, I would also compete in Jack and Jill's and Strictly Swings. I no longer compete in the routine divisions, but these events are 
really, really fun and super demanding. As a professional, I have to be on from the minute I walk out of my hotel room door until I walk back into my room. People want to talk to you. They want to see you. They want to know you. And you have to, you're, you're essentially a public personality. I'm, I'm a big fish in this itty bitty pond. And so I get to go for three, four days at a time, enjoying this sense of being a bit of a celebrity on some level, but then I get to come home to my anonymity in my community because at home, nobody's a superstar. So that was a typical week for me. And I weaned my travel schedule to, I was on the road two to three weekends a month. Um, depending on when I could take my family with me. So there are a handful of events that were appropriate for the kids to be at with me. My husband would join us and we would kind of make it a fun family affair. And uh, other than that, I would just be on the road on my own. So what are some of the things you, you touched on it a little bit, but what do you what do you typically enjoy about doing these dance events and traveling and teaching? And then what are some of the things you dislike about it? So I love working with people. I love teaching people how to get more enjoyment out of something they already love. The fact that I, my classes are filled with people who choose to be there. I'm not teaching children whose parents drop them off. I'm teaching adults who are spending their own time and their own money to pursue this hobby that they are madly in love with and to watch artistic breakthroughs to give people permission to consider themselves dancers. So many people want to be dancers, but they don't give themselves permission to think of themselves as such. And the the look on someone's face when I say, you're a dancer. You don't have to be a certain level to be a dancer. If you dance, you're a dancer. There's something about giving people permission to move freely in their bodies and to do it with enough guidance that they feel safe, but enough freedom that they feel like an artist. It's phenomenal. I absolutely love competing in Jack and Jill's and Strictly Swings. That is my playtime with my friends. I don't get to dance with my colleagues very often. We're very busy at these events. We're being pulled in a million different directions, but the champions Jack and Jill is always my favorite. I love performing. Uh, I wish I could do it more, but like I said, that's not the highest paying part of my job. I love teaching workshops. I'm a technician at heart. Anybody who's trained with me knows that. So getting into an intensive format where I work multiple hours with a smaller group and really dig to deeper layers of the dance and give them an opportunity to understand it beyond what they thought, that's always so exciting and inspiring. The only thing I don't like about my job is the actual act of getting to and from where I'm going. I do not like airplanes. I do not like airports. It is a lot of time spent in transit and it is super draining, especially when I'm trying to be gone for as short a period of time as possible. Before I had kids, I'd go to an event on a Thursday. So I kind of got to ease into the weekend and I would typically stay Sunday. I'd fly home Monday at my leisure. I don't do that anymore. I try to try to be gone for the shortest amount of time. So it's like out on Friday morning, home by Sunday night, packing in as much work as I can in the meantime. So it's, it's that type of schedule that I don't care for. My son was asking me if I could have a superpower. I would want to be able to, what, what's it called when I can just- Teleport. Yeah, I want to teleport. That's, that would be my superpower. Because if I could teleport, my job would be perfect. What are the things that make you really effective? And then sort of what are the skills that anyone would need to be successful in the field? Well, I told you that I did not plan for this career 
But had I planned for this career, I did a really good job preparing because I love public speaking. I started public speaking when I was in middle school. I entered contests. I won lots of contests in high school. I did extemporaneous public speaking, which is all off the cuff, be quick, think on your feet, be able to answer questions at the end of a presentation. And then when I did go to college, I was a communications major. All of that set me up for teaching. People don't understand when you're teaching to a room full of 100 people, this is public speaking. People are scared of public speaking. So all of a sudden they end up, they might be wonderful dancers. They might even be incredible teachers one-on-one, but they don't have the ability to run a room and to make sure that you're keeping the room paced well, that you're keeping your content organized, that you are articulate in your explanations, that you can come at subjects from multiple different directions so you can appeal to the widest range that you're able to read the room when you know you have to get them moving versus when they can listen to more information. I'm constantly taking in information and making really quick decisions on how I'm going to present. And that, I think, is one of my absolute strengths in being a teacher. I'm also really good at diagnosing. So from a one-on-one perspective, when I'm watching somebody move, I'm good at diagnosing what's happening and then making a correction. So there's a difference between instruction and correction. Instruction is what I give to an entire room. I want everybody to do this. Correction is I'm watching CJ dance and I see something I want to correct on your body. So I'm going to tweak the way you move in a very personal way that I wouldn't give to everybody else. Those are two different skill sets. And the other thing that set me up for this is people who did anything physical or athletic prior to dancing are going to move into dancing quicker and easier, especially if they are used to being physically coached because um, understanding movement is imperative in learning to dance. So being a softball player, specifically being a softball pitcher who used to take lots and lots and lots of pitching lessons, I was used to the idea of studying mechanics and being able to alter mechanics when I was given information. And that's what dancers have to do. I agree that public speaking is critical. What are some good ways that someone could practice learning that? Because I do know that's like the number one fear people have. Yeah. So is school the best way to practice? Is talking to strangers the best way to practice? Like how could someone build that muscle up? Toastmasters. I'm a huge fan of Toastmasters. Um, join a local club, join a local organization and get your, put yourself in a position where you're learning how to speak in public. Uh, Because it's not just being brave enough to do so. It's being able to organize your thoughts while you're speaking. Learning how to think and speak simultaneously so that you don't have a lot of pauses and ums and ands and uh. It's a muscle that you have to exercise. Finding a local organization like Toastmasters I think is fantastic. And I tell all of my aspiring teachers that they need to train in public speaking if they really want to succeed here. Because I promise you, if you are at an event and you walk through the room during multiple workshops, listening to different teachers, you will notice a drastic difference in the teachers who understand how to speak to a room. So this is where we talk about post-COVID era. The dance community has certainly stagnated. It's really hard to get new dancers in the door if there are no social dances and no opportunities for visibility to see what West Coast Swing is. What do you think, I mean, this is, this is potentially a, a longer answer, but 
not just the future of of the dance community, but the future of aspiring professionals if they're looking to teach as a career? So we've lost a lot. Partner dancing was hit. I mean, in-person events were hit very hard. Partner dancing uh, is a very unique thing. I tried to explain to people uh, what we do is weird. Like, let's just call it what it is. What we do is weird. And so when they're writing mandates and they're trying to legislate us through a public health crisis, we're kind of an outlier. And I feel like as a community, we need to be making our own really good decisions to be protective of each other and of the community as a whole. We're going to lose tons of dancers, Um, our recreational dancers who just kind of did this here and there to keep themselves entertained. They're gone. We've lost them. They found other things to do. If they come back to dancing, great. I'm not banking on them. The core group of people who traveled to events, they're still going to be with us. But we also lost during this entire period of time where we haven't been able to dance. We not only lost dancers that aren't going to come back, but we lost the dancers that we would have brought in. So West Coast Swing in particular was growing exponentially, and we've basically been taken out at the knees. And so I've uh, been counseling some local pros to really do what they can virtually to reach out to their students, uh, to make them still feel seen, to make sure that they feel missed, to make sure that they know that this will be here and the people will be here once it's safe for us to gather again. But we're going to have to grow back the way we started. And the way we started was local events that happened in dance studios. And then there would be a regional event where people who were in driving distance would come in before we started getting into national events where people would get on airplanes to go. And I think that when it's time for us to recover, we're going to have to think in those terms of local first, then regional, then national. And we can't expect to just jump back to where we were because where we were doesn't exist anymore. I think anybody who is aspiring to be a teacher, the best thing you can do is cultivate your local community and nurture it. Nurture it and take care of it. Uh, We need local pros. Uh, A a story I tell is I I live and work in San Diego. And when I was first in San Diego, I'm going to throw some names out that maybe you, if you dance, you might know them. If you don't, you won't, but you'll get the point. In one studio, we had Michael Kim, Michael Kilbasa, Parker Dearborn, me, Lorraine Baldovi, Ronnie DiBenedetta, and any given day, there were others. These are all national and global pros. Our local community suffered because we were all on the road and there was nobody who stayed home and ran weekly dances and just really nurtured the growth of the local community, coupled with the fact that if somebody was going to take a private lesson, they weren't taking a private lesson from a local pro when they have this buffet of nationally and globally known pros. So we kind of kept the local pros from being successful without nurturing the local community ourselves. So every community needs local pros and they need local pros that work collaboratively with other local pros. The goal is not to cut the biggest slice of the pie. The goal is to grow the pie so there's plenty for everyone. And so if you want to be valued in this business, you have to create value. In the given era, the post-COVID era, your, your value is going to be growing and nurturing your local community collaboratively with other local pros. I think there's going to be a huge focus on community building. If I mean, there already was, of course, but so much more so that 
you got to get over the the fear of interacting. I mean, fortunately, the vaccines look promising that are coming in the coming months. Um, hopefully, the adoption rate is strong. I hope. Hopefully, I'm crossing my fingers. Hopefully, it doesn't mutate further. Like, there's so many things. Hopefully, the antibodies last a significant amount of time. So, there are, there are so many people are wanting to already plan for what's next, and there are too many questions left. There are too many questions. I'm having to. My brain is, I have a very problem-solving brain. I like to see my path through things so I can predict what's going to be on the other side and prepare myself accordingly. Uh, I have a worst-case scenario brain, which is super fun. If any of you have those, they're really exciting. Uh, But the truth of the matter is there are too many questions left to be answered. And uh, I am taking a really hard line. There are people who are trying to get back to social dancing. There are studios that are trying to run classes. I have the utmost sympathy and level of understanding for business owners that are suffering. I, I, it's, it's awful. But I, I had one studio owner that said to me, I'm trying to keep dancing alive. And I said, I'm trying to keep dancers alive. And if we don't keep dancers alive, then there will be no dancing. So I have taken in my own personal life, I have taken a very hard stance I currently won't even teach socially distanced and masked private lessons. I believe they can be done safely in the right circumstances. I believe small group classes can be done safely in the right circumstances. I believe most people aren't following precautions closely enough. And for me personally, I won't even teach private lessons because I'm taking the stance that partner dancing is not safe right now in in any way. And I want to just patiently wait until it is but also I'm speaking from a place of privilege in that I've been able to create income doing online work and I have a husband who's employed. So I fully recognize that the position of privilege I'm speaking from in saying we should all wait because there are dancers out there that have to pay their bills and have no other means to do so. We're in a really hard situation. Yeah. I, I feel my heart goes out to all the High-level dancers who end of 2019 were building reputations and getting attention and getting booked for weekend visits and yeah, 2020 hit and it just evaporates. So it's has been a tough field already, and this year obviously like throws dynamite into the equation. Oh, so I mean, and I'm a very well-established professional in my industry, and if I sit too long and think about it, there's a fear that will kind of not my brain saying, okay, well, when this all comes back are you still going to be relevant? Are you still going to have a job? Like, what's it going to look like? It's not going to come back to what it was. So what is your role going to look like in what is to become when we can't even predict what that looks like and when it's going to happen? So insecurity is running deep in our industry and it's understandable. It's really hard. Well, fortunately, you have a pretty good reputation, so you can you can rule over the ashes for whatever's left here in another 12 months or so. So Brandy, can you give me an example of sometime in your life or your, your professional aspirations or some of the, the random jobs you worked before you got into teaching, an example of somewhere you've succeeded, and then perhaps an example of somewhere you've failed? I've had lots of success. I've had lots of success in winning contests and continuing to kind of reinvent myself after ending partnerships, after having children, after not planning on coming back to teaching full-time and having to after a divorce. There's been many times I've had to just buckle down, swallow my insecurities and just put myself out there. And 
That is something I'm really proud of. I have a bad habit of dismissing some of my accomplishments as being, oh, I was just in the right place at the right time. Yeah, opportunity presented itself. I've worked really hard and I have been brave. And that bravery has led me to some really great moments. Failure, I don't feel like I've failed a, a lot, but I definitely haven't achieved everything I wanted. It's funny because when you say failed, I made it to the final round of Olympic trials for the 96 U.S. women's softball team, but I didn't make the team. I would be remiss if I call that a failure. I took second place at the U.S. Open West Coast Swing Championships a lot of times. I think I took second place four or five times. I would be remiss to call that a failure. I mean, second place at the Open, that's like that's a dream. Did I cry and feel sad for myself after that? Yeah, for a minute. And then I would have to pull myself back together and be like, okay, what's next? I have a, I have a different view of failure. And I don't feel like I've failed a lot. But I have definitely fallen short of goals and had to redirect and, and even change my view of the goal itself and find success in the perceived failure. And that's what I encourage my students to do. I'm sure you couldn't figure this out, CJ, but I'm a highly competitive individual. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in between dancing country and dancing West Coast Swing, I used to also dance professionally in international 10 dance. And that is the five professional Latin dances and ballroom dances, international standard dances. And I was not successful. I mean, that industry is intense. And so... I don't like competing in a contest if there's not a chance I could win. That's just not my style. And so my coach, dancing professional Latin, there was not a snowball's chance in hell that we were going to win. It wasn't even a remote possibility. Like even if all the stars aligned and we had the best day of our careers, we still were not going to win. So what my coach did for me is we would set non-placement goals. So whatever it was that we were working on in our training, we would set a goal based on that. And then when we would review the video of the contest, if I accomplished that goal, then we said, I won that contest. And I had to really change my perspective because the first place trophy wasn't an option and I didn't know how to feel successful without the trophy. But that was a really phenomenal method. And I use that with students all the time now. I have students that are brand new to competing and they're entering their first novice Jack and Jill and for those of you out there who don't know what a Jack and Jill is, it's an improv dance contest where leaders and followers enter separately and you draw a name out of a hat and that's your partner. And you don't know the song. You perhaps have never danced with this person before. There are so many variables that you can't control that thinking that winning the contest is, is the end game is a little bit unreasonable. So I have new students that are entering their first novice Jack and Jill. And what we do is we set a goal or two that have nothing to do with placements. And then we watch the video and we'll be like, hey, you won. Like, look at that. You did it. And sometimes the goal is as simple as you're going to keep your eyes up and off the floor for the entire dance, or you're going to have a smile on your face. And sometimes it's a little bit more technical based on things that we've been working on. But learning how to set goals that do not require that ultimate success can help guide you towards success with a different perspective. I think that was so well said. And yeah, you, you got to where I was going before I could. And that's, I'm hoping to take the teeth out of the word failure or the concept of failure for selfish reasons. I've definitely struggled with that. And I have to assume others out there, like you said, 
will hate doing something if they know ahead of time they're not going to win. And they'll they'll never leave the house. They'll never even try because they're not going to win or they're not going to do well or live up to some grandiose level of expectations that they set for themselves. So failure shouldn't have a shameful connotation to it. I think people should be encouraged to try and try their best and work hard and learn. That's something that I even today need to get better at is learning to fail, but not feel like a failure. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, it's really interesting as a parent. I mean, parenting is coaching. <laughs> so, uh, it's, it's fun to kind of draw those parallels, but it's like when my kids fail at something, I want them to feel the sting. The sting should be there, but just for a moment, just for a moment until you can shift the perspective. And, and the idea is the only time it's true failure is if you didn't learn anything. So every, every time we fall short, we should gain experience and that experience should guide us to the next goal. And sometimes I can't speak enough about how sometimes the success and a failure is a shift of perspective and shifting your expectations and realizing that the success you were chasing is not actually what you want. If you were to go back and talk to 18 or 21 year old Brandy, what would you tell her? It's so easy. And I would tell this to every young person, please just let go of the picture of what you think your life is supposed to look like. Just let it go and live the life that is. I had so many expectations about when I was supposed to do certain things. I was raised in a family where getting married was what you did. and. I don't necessarily believe that anymore. And I'm not raising my children with the idea that their job is to go out there and find a spouse. I don't want my kids to feel like society or me or anyone expects by a certain age, things should look a certain way. You get one shot at this, let go of the picture and just live and love what is. And if you do that, you're going to be able to continually shape the picture without ever feeling like external expectations are shoving you in a place you don't want to go. Closing things out, how would someone learn more about you or see your videos? You can find me at brandyguild.com. I have some links to some of my performance videos. I have some instructional information up there and there's a contact form. So you're welcome to reach out to me. I love hearing other people's stories. I love being an influence where and when my influence is valuable. So please don't hesitate to introduce yourself and let me know a little bit about you. That's it for us, Brian. I really appreciate the time. This is a a lovely conversation. I'm glad other people will get to listen to it. Yeah. Thank you so much for the time today. My pleasure, CJ. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 